He has been poisoned. Has he? By whom? I was going to put this in follow-up, but it's not really related at all to anything we've done recently. I was reading an 1880 Nature article about the pneumatic clock system that Paris used to have. Uh-huh. I noticed there were a few like announcement notes on the second page. So yeah. things like, uh, Dr. So-and-so has gotten a professorship at Oxford University in rare beans, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and I noticed this one. It says... Many lessons will and already have been drawn from the unprecedented explosion of gas in London on Monday. The results were disastrous enough, but we may congratulate ourselves that they were no worse. The science of the explosion is simple enough, as the daily papers have been telling the public. And when science is properly taught in our elementary schools, such accidents can only be due to perversity, not lack of knowledge. We recommend this explosion and its immediate cause to the consideration of Lord Norton. Incredible. Which sounds extremely alchemist skill to me very and also does not tell us what the science was because it was like it's one of those things i love and it also frustrates me it's like this is such common knowledge at the time of writing we're not gonna even vaguely give you a clue and there's like a hundred odd years later like mm-hmm. there's an example of that and i i can't remember if it's apocryphal or if it's genuine but apparently there was like a land that traded a lot with the ancient egyptians and uh, had a lot of interaction with the ancient Egyptians, but no one knows where the fuck this place was because it was obviously like, this is this place, and it's not been traced archaeologically because the, all the evidence of this place is in the writings of ancient Egypt. I would not be at all surprised if that was non-apocryphal. Yeah. That's the yeah, that's very believable to me. Yeah, um, but yes. That is one of the most frustrating, but simultaneously my favourite things. Of yeah. like, of course, no one would write down what a horse is because we all know. And then we were talking about like pneumatics ages ago, and yeah. I didn't realise how into it the Parisians were for a while. I think they had like a mail system as well. Which Parisian pneumatic mail system? Yeah, that I sounds, think so, but definitely the clocks. And they Amazing. lasted right up until the thirties, uh, when wow. the Seine flooded, and then. It fucked it all up. And I think by that point, there was enough other technology that nobody could be bothered fixing that whole thing up. But those oh. weird clocks, you know, the very Parisian clocks, like the four-faced on the lamppost looking thing. Yes. Those were those. And oh. obviously now adapted for electric. Yeah. yeah. Oh, cool. That delights me. I'll send you the PDF anyway, so you can read the full article. It's just got yeah. nice illustrations. You know, I like that shit. I look forward to this. I will enjoy mm. this. I've started watching The X-Files because oh. uh, that Buffy podcast I liked is now covering The X-Files. So. Have you watched it before? I've seen like odd episodes, but I've never like watched it through. Okay. So it's quite nice the podcast is covering it so I can watch it weekly because I feel like it's just not going to hold up to a binge. Uh, yes. I really enjoyed binging the first couple of seasons. I don't know whether I got too bored of it after that or whether it just became less bingeable afterwards. When well, it gets like, into the kind of deep plot point stuff, I lose interest. I love just the monster of the week stuff. I don't mind a deep plot point thing, but a show like that, I prefer mm. to watch weekly than binge. Mm. Binging a deep plot point show feels like you kind of get very can't see the wood for the trees with it. Yes, agreed. The X-Files has come up as I've been working on my book because obviously it was on around the same time and the network it was on is quite interesting. So it was very weird because the the podcast, they're doing a bit, uh, Latoya Ferguson, the producer, who is um, an amazing person who talks about TV a lot, was doing like a whole, this is the context of what the network was in 1993 and what they were doing. I was like, I know that. I know those facts. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
It's very fun little mild overlap with what I'm working on. Um, But yeah, I forgot how much shows, especially from like that particular bit of the 90s, can be quite male gazy. Yeah. Yeah, there's an awful lot of damsel in distress. There's a bit in this where, because there are some weird markings on kids that may or may not have been abducted by aliens. And she like takes her robe off and sees the markings on herself. But it's all like very slow lingering shots on her Calvin Klein underwear. (laughs) And she's like, she was the only woman in the woman in the room for this, wasn't she? Yeah. I'm just trying to work out how to segue from the X Files into our podcast. Speaking of things beyond our understanding. Oh, it is literally a recap podcast. Speaking of recap podcasts. Oh yeah. (laughs) Would you like to make a podcast? I would like to make a podcast, Joanna. Let's do that. Let's make a podcast. Hello and welcome to The True Shall Make You Fret, a podcast in which we are reading and recapping every book from Terry Pratchett's Discworld series, one at a time, in chronological order. I'm Joanna Hagen. And I'm Francine Carroll. And this is part two of our discussion of Monstrous Regiment. Yes. We'll just remind you that this section begins on page 160 in the Corgi paperback with uh, That Was a Good Time, and ends on page 330 with You Don't Know Nothing About War. Nothing. Note on spoilers before we crack on, we are a spoiler light podcast, obviously heavy spoilers for Monstrous Regiment, but we will avoid spoiling uh, major future events in the Discworld series and we're saving any and all discussion of the final Discworld novel, The Shepherd's Crown, until we get there so you, dear listener, can come on the journey with us. Covered in forbidden camouflage and sneaking through the woods at night. Ooh, forbidden camouflage. Mm, There's a drag name. (laughs) Follow up. I was looking for some random bit of knowledge about this book and came across an old interview with Terry Pratchett that I'd never seen before from 2003. It was mentioned in the L Space list of interviews, but not linked. But I found it and it has a lot of talk about, well, A, Monstrous Regiment and B, what we were talking about with like the writing style of all thing and all of that. So I'll link to that for interested listeners. It's always a joy to find nice audio of Pratchett that we haven't heard before. Mm-hmm. We've also got a long comment from Sander Vogel, our cyclopedic annotator in multifarious studies from the subreddit. And that has some very cool annotations, including recommendation to read remarks, all quiet on the Western Front, which, like Monstrous Regiment, really hits home on the Ratcatchers' propaganda during the war, the discourse around the war in the unsuspecting or unaffected populace. Uh, so I haven't read it, and I will try and do so at some point soon. Also, apparently, the depiction in this book of the relationship between NCOs and COs has always been quite amusing and is quite accurate in this one. All officers are posh, says Sonderbogel, get you in trouble and generally are a piece of work. Lie to them if necessary or you'll be in deep or deeper trouble. A little bit of nice detail about his old captain. Nicknamed Hout Kinderschokolade because he always had this unsettling frozen smile in his face resembling that of a boy on the chocolate box. Which is linked in the... Oh my God. <laughs> Did you click through on that? <laughs> uh, no, I actually didn't. Oh God. So yeah, I will link to this full comment because it's very good and I can't read the whole thing out. We had some stuff on the Patreon, didn't we? Oh, from Neris to saying the German national anthem only has one verse, but it is the third verse of the original song and capital letters, you do not sing the other verses, especially not the first one. Brackets, though I was once on a choir trip where the Italian choir sang all the verses and it was incredibly awkward, but also hilarious. Uh, For our international listeners who may not be aware of the fun, do not sing the first bit of the German national anthem. It's to do with the war. Ah, yes, the war. (laughs) Yes, the the war. Yes. Uh, So. 
Would you like to tell us what happened previously on Monstrous Regiment? Yeah, sure. I did not learn the tune to this, I'm sorry. Previously on Monstrous Regiment. As young Polly Perks worked her job at the bar, she began to imagine a plan quite bizarre. Though Nuggan would never permit me to roam, I must fetch my brother and bring him back home. So early one morning, she softly arose and dressed herself up in her big brother's clothes. She cut her hair close and she finished her chores and joined up with Jackram to go off to war. The sergeant told tales and the corporal harassed as Ollie and company marched off to the barracks, where they soon found that they were the last troops remaining. They'd be sent to the front lines with no further training. Though Strappy soon split, they had a lieutenant whose manner was mild and temper was clement. After a run-in with soldiers and chat with the press, the lads one by one took a chance to confess. Each one told her secret, and now in cahoots, they marched on together, clad in dead men's boots. That is fantastic. If anybody would like to try and put that to a tune, please feel free, but I don't think I will be. When my voice is better, I'll try it. Nice. I have promised a Polly Oliver rendition. What happened this time, Joanna? In this section, there's smoke in the trees as the squad marches through the woods. The charcoal burners have been burned and it looks like the culprits were cheesemongers. Maladite's got no coffee and the squad suspects Strappy, but Jackram doesn't need to know. Blouse and Jackram discuss deserters and the squad gets another lecture. They're travelling at night off the roads. Igarina reveals her true self to Polly and there's the light of a clax tower in the distance. They head for the recipients and Blouse keeps Jackram back. Polly runs for the third man and claims the poisoned cipher. While a prisoner waits, Polly and Waza dig graves and discuss the Duchess. Alice plans to lead the army. Maladite noticed Polly noticing, but promises to keep it quiet. Polly takes tea to the captive, who suggests surrender is their best bet. Polly learns the truth about Captain Horrence and the dire straits of the regiment, and a crossbow hostage situation ends messily for Blouse's earlobe. Six miles later, while paused at a vantage point, Jackram chats killing and admits he sent Strappy running. It's a strange war and Maladite struggling. There's troops nearby and a newspaper cart. Polly confronts William DeWerd, who's desperate for an interview. Jackram warns William about the tiger. He destroyed his cage. Yes, yes, the tiger is out before delivering him <laughs> to the Rupert. The army is bottled up near the keep, most of the high command's captive, and there's little hope, but there is some human interest. Blouse poses for a pick, and Jackram gets a tip and spreads lies about the regiment's plans. Camouflage is constructed and Blouse plans to take the keep, but Jackram's not happy. Maladite's personal space is picking up the watching werewolf and he's still desperate for a coffee. The Duchess has given permission to skip the scarves and Jackram remembers a girl he knew. There's a signal on the hill and Blouse lies with light. Vimes is annoyed, but all the Borogravians need to do is hold their ground. Buggy comes by and Vimes wonders how conspicuous a coffee drop would be. As the squad approaches the keep, Waza promises the Duchess's help. There's a turkey-based miracle and Polly makes washerwoman plans. Blouse has the idea and he's the obviously the most obvious woman. The others provide feminine accoutrement, but Polly can't shave him. Jackram makes excuses to keep Polly and the others out of the keep. Blouse saunters in, and Maladite's almost lost it when Coffee comes crashing down. Jackram wants to sneak into the front lines, but Polly wants to continue into the keep. The big confrontations are bust, but Jackram promises to get the squad dressed up. Nice. Still little coins? Oh, no, wait, fucking helicopters. God damn it, Francine. I'm sorry. We can't skip helicopters today, Francine. I know, especially this is not really today. Important I do to apologise. Okay, so I was trying to remember exactly where this helicopter loincloth thing started. Mm. And as far as I can remember, I noticed the loincloths and said that they crop up a lot. Mm -hmm. 
and then said, oh yeah, and I feel like helicopters are there a lot too. I think I was literally just thinking of this scene. I think that's possible. Yeah, I think it's entirely this. But anyway. It was in one of the first episodes. It was like episode one or two, because I've listened yeah. to it there was, reasonably there, recently. There were no helicopters in there. There was an aeroplane, but there were there were no helicopters. So yeah, I was literally just thinking of this one scene and decided well, helicopter. 112 the- episodes later. <laughs> The bit is finally fucking justified. Oh. No, we've had actual helicopters. Yeah, but, we have, we have, we have. Yeah, but I, I'm sure but this you were was the bit I'm thinking of. of. Uh, yeah, so Maladites suggests flying machines, a sort of flying windmill. Mm. It's just like a big screw up in the sky. Mm. And uh, when he starts having his flash sides, uh, for a moment, Polly saw them in the sky. Giant fat screws spinning in the air, hovering in the air. Yeah. Actually, this relates to that interview we were talking about because Pratchett brought up a man called Sir George Cayley, who is like the father of aeronautics and who worked out stuff like the anatomy of a bird's wing in Ah. a way that Leonardo da Vinci didn't. And I was thinking, actually, now I think about it, I think the last hero, Leonard of Querm, was kind of half based on Leonardo da Vinci and half on Sir George Cayley. Oh. And yeah, finally, actual weird screw helicopters. Is that what you would think of when you saw a helicopter screw in the air? Well, the description matches the specific helicopter that Leonard Quirm was in to paint his ceiling at the end of The Last Hero. Mm. Oh, so, okay, yeah, yeah. So it's maybe not our Vietnam. I've been trying really hard to not say flash sideways because that's like the nickname for uh, the weird flashes in the final season of Lost. And I don't worry. Right. God, you, you consume too much media. We can't use a lot of words because of it. <laughs> I know, but now I'm trying to make it my job. I can't really fucking stop. Anyway, loincloths, uh, we are going with the branches, leaves, etc. Because uh, mm. what was the first loincloth, if not a leaf? Deep. The er uh, loincloth, <laughs> as it were. Um, as it were. And uh, just for other things we keep track of, we have got death in this section. He walks with Polly for a yeah, bit. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. I think it did also bear a slight resemblance to, um, and it's not the same situation, but when Vimes is having mm. his near-death experience and death has to have a near-Vimes experience in the fifth yeah. elephant. <laughs> Absolutely. Quotes, quotes. Quotes. Yes, let's. Would you like to go first? I would, thank you. In the firelight, the grin of Sergeant Jack Rum was a crescent of blood his coat the colour of a battlefield sky. You are my little lads, he roared, and I will look after you. I love Jack Rum as an avenging angel. I think he's painted perfectly in this section, especially just fucking terrifying. Yeah. You would so want him on side. Mine is a very short one because I've got a lot to talk about today. The sky was red. The war was a day away. Very good. It's just a really nice unpoetic description. Mm-hmm. It's a very thuddy little sentence. Yes, but also very poetic at the same time. Very much so. Cool. Right, let's start talking about characters then. Briefly, squad in general, get referred to as the Monstrous Regiment. We got the name of the thing in the thing. We did, William DeWerd. Thank you, William, for providing the name of the thing in the thing. He's done that for us a bit now, hasn't he? Yes, well done. Well, you'd think he's quite good with words, I suppose. Yes. So yeah, Polly is coming into her own. She is. It's quite interesting for her that, so she's right at the beginning, she's kind of frustrated with the uh, the fact that they all took her for a boy. Mm. Uh, she's very much like, well, obviously, yeah, because I worked really hard and I studied and I planned and I and had the socks and the walk and the, I wish I hadn't 
not figured it out at all. Yeah. Which I, I can kind of see both sides of that. I respect that attitude. Yeah, absolutely. I found it quite interesting that she was trying to like hide some of her intelligence as well from the rest of the soldiers and Maledict kind of noticed it. Yeah, very much so. I, I think there's a really big theme for her in the section as she keeps, you know, she's wondering why she kept her hair and she's thinking about how she wants to leave the girl behind her and she keeps insisting very outwardly that she's doing this one job, which is getting her brother mm-hmm. and going home and that's all she's here for, which mm-hmm. is part of why she doesn't want to be noticed. She doesn't want yeah. attention drawn to her. Yeah, and Jacqueline goes, when you're sergeant, Polly goes, I uh, don't want that. Jacqueline's like, yeah, right. <laughs> I'll give you a minute to figure that one out then. All right. I liked how the drama of her having to shave blouse was drawn out. It's one of those like tiny little details. It, it shouldn't be a big deal in the grand scheme of things. There's so much peril, but it's just one of those like little stumbling tasks that really throws you off when you're doing something else. It's like, what if I have to shave him? <laughs> and this kind of ludicrous thing where Blouse keeps asking to be shaved and mm. there's all these different reasons why and eventually he has to admit, I don't know how to shave myself. Mm. Poor fella. Poor Blouse. But yeah, no, I think Polly's character really expands in this one for sure you definitely see how she is a natural leader she's able to take over from maledict when um he is kind of incapacitated by coffee cravings he, she learns how to steer a rupert very quickly having watched jackram do it for a couple of days her rupert steering is fantastic because jackram starts starting to and i'll get on to jackram and blouse mm. but jackram seems to be kind of starting to lose the ability to steer this very specific rupert yeah absolutely and i guess maybe it's because it's polly's first time doing it she can she's not stuck in her ways about it yeah she's willing to be a bit more creative which is also a kind of these moments she gets with jackram there's one Mm. where uh she gets away with something and there's a there gleamed a gleam it was the one you got when he was secretly pleased i think it's when he's called her out on you know not taking care of all these things that someone Mm. else has passed on to her and she says i'm wearing red in a forest what do you want from me yeah absolutely it's not just that jackram's pleased with her it's that although she's not actively doing it she's pleased that he is pleased with her there's yeah. something satisfying about impressing Jackram. Yeah, absolutely. You can see, like, built, which obviously, yeah, if you're around someone like Jackram, you would kind of want to impress them. Of course. Her kind of lack of, not lack of social skills, that's a bit harsh, but the kind of, she's young and she doesn't know how to deal with the conversations with the less fortunate girls, I think, which is an interesting thing to watch. Very much so. Um, so, yeah, speaking of Lofty and Tonka, which mm. are the big ones for that mm. one, when Tonka explains the, the working school and specifically Father Jupe, and I think that's the mm. big... Because to Polly, that's like, oh, it's this annoying, pious guy that came to dinner yeah. sometimes. And Tonka's response is, yes, he was very good at seeming. Very good at seeming. There was something and about like a chasm. There was a dark chasm in the conversation that not even a troll could bridge, ah, which what go. a fucking line. Yeah. And kind of calling back to that huge bridge across the chasm. Oh, yeah. Man by a troll. Yes, that she physically had to cross. Mm-hmm. And you get lofty. I've, I've sort of uh, bunched them together a bit, which is a bit unfair of me, really. They're very distinct people. Lofty slash Tilda. And her little relationship to fire which starts coming Mm. in a bit more here when polly's fighting for yes we're gonna go and storm the keep right at the end lofty struck a match and held it so it flared that was pretty much a speech from lofty yes (laughs) and again like you get all these little obviously they've just been spending so much time together and learning so much about each other in this short period of time that the fact you could make an observation like that about somebody having known them for what a week at this point yeah maybe not even a week yeah it's it's really interesting how quickly they've all gotten used to each other's foibles and then at the same time know so little about each other, as was proved with like the workhouse thing. Yeah. And you go into, I mean, obviously we learn about Igorina, 
in this section, mm-hmm. which I think is the first female eagle we've met. We've had a mention of female eagles before, but I think it was mentioned as they just look like attractive women. Yeah. So I think we've slightly developed from that. Who has also kept her hair in a jar. It's still growing. I don't say how much I would love to be able to like <laughs> take all my hair off, but keep it and be able to put it back on whenever I wanted. And yes, I know wigs exist, but it's not the same. Yeah, I mean, for summer. Yeah, like it's taken me three years to grow this, so I don't want to shave my head for the summer. But at the same time, I really want to shave my head for the summer. See, you've got enough hair, you can do like an undercut. I can, but then I'd have to buy clippers and I don't trust myself with them. Yeah, fair. Okay. I was about to say, um, I'll do it for you. No, I won't. Terrible idea. It's like Polly with a knife in the billiard room. <laughs> it's like Polly shaving blouse. <laughs> okay, so Waza slash Alice, which is really fascinating. Little character growth here. Mm. Yeah, we've gone from almost no detail to, ah, this is yeah, interesting, like, comrade. We knew she was like quite religious already. We saw her reaction to um, someone denigrating the Duchess. Mm. But here we get this really intense belief. She believed in everything. Um, the conversation she has with Polly while they're digging graves there's a very chilling thing about the way she's sort of asking what Polly's motivations are and very much speaking with the and the Duchess thinks that does you credit. Yeah. And Polly sort of panically said, yeah, I'm also doing this for the Duchess. I think about the Duchess a lot. And the response of, I'm very glad to hear that because I had thought you were a backslider. A backslider. <laughs> and you can just imagine something in the delivery from described as like a stick thin lab that shakes a lot, mm. holding a shovel, that that would be really kind of terrifying and sinister. Yeah, yeah especially when then Polly mentions Waza or Alice has this kind of occasional, she seems much taller and there is power behind her eyes and her smile is frightening. And yeah. And talks about how this traveling with them has been the happiest times of her mm. life and suggests that they get down on their knees and pray while they're standing in a grave that they're digging. And then you kind of get some of those details filled in by the others who are at the yeah. girls' workhouse and saying like, now you get some idea of why this is the best time of her life. And it adds a little bit more to the troubling, doesn't it? Because like the trope that Pratchett does nicely sidestep is that the the poor, you know, troubled, abused girl turns into scary religious serial killer kind of thing. Yeah. And so there's a, a hint of that here before, you know, it it seems apparent that she's a good person, really. But um, when Polly's reflecting on it and, you know, she's thinking about what the girls' school did to people, if you were Tonka, it bowled you and gave you a shell. Uh, lofty, it was hard to know, but she does like a bit of fire, doesn't mm-hmm. she? <laughs> and with treat. Waza, it talks about, you know, if you're dealt to pull hands, starved up and beaten and mistreated push deeper and deeper into yourself what would you find down there and then you'd look up from those depths into the only smile you ever saw meaning the duchess's smile yeah but how much more scary is that belief somewhere like the disc world where the belief really can do something yeah good point yeah when you re- when you really believe in something it matters yeah yeah. and yeah so she starts growing and changing as they travel like you said uh, sometimes she seemed taller full of some ethereal certainty and shadows fled before her I like the kind of theology elements of it as well, in that was it is arguing with Nuggan through the Duchess. Like she yes. is so into her religion that she is able to question parts of it, which is something I associate with like the Jewish faith a bit more than Christianity, like the that ability to To argue, yeah. yeah to argue, yeah. <laughs> I think there's also there's a very clear like Joan of Arc parallel. Obviously, she's pretending to be a boy or like dressed in masculine clothes and her plan is some kind of deity has told her she has got to go and lead the army. Yes. 
Moving on from our slightly frightening one to Maledict, who's slightly frightening in a whole different way. I know, yes. I know I said I like Maledite, but I've started reading it as Maledict now, so that's just what's coming out again. Um, uh, again, I like that Maledite's paying a lot of attention to Polly mm-hmm. enough to notice the Polly noticing the yes. third man thing. He, he's the kind of, the outside of Deva. Yes. Even though he's with them all. He, he's two steps back and far enough away to see what's happening from further away even than Polly, who I think considers herself a step back. Yeah. Yeah. Polly sort of thinks of herself as a little bit above it all and watching everyone else and has now realised there's someone else who's also watching everyone else. It's that yeah. same realisation we had from the first section. Uh, while you're watching everyone, other people are watching you. Yeah. But at the same time, Maledict is now corporal and is not really capable of having that control anymore. And so is happy to kind of give that to Polly as she yes. needs to. So there's a certain equality, I think, there that even like the very strict army ranks is not really sticking to these guys. Like as it's shown in a few places, actually, they're just kind of like, oh, yeah, no, we kind of get the idea of like the ranks and stuff. But like in reality, this is kind of a weird day, isn't it? So, <laughs> I mean, we very much respect the rank of sergeant. Everything yes. else is... <laughs> I like this idea of uh, extended personal space when vampires are stressed. Mm. Their personal space can, uh, I won't say it the way Igor says it, but can extend for quite a, quite a wide range. Yes. That's Just, kind of relatable to me. Yeah, for sure. Propri- is it proprioception, I think? I always forget this word. Like the, the awareness of yourself. And then this must be just like an extended version of this. Maybe they work with magnets. I don't know. Quite vampires. possibly. We'll find out uh, one day. Werewolves never. are also magnetic. This mm-hmm. has been proven. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it's also still continuing to help when they see him again and he's sort of like, this is what's going to happen next with your vampire and you might have to be prepared if you can't get them coffee. Yeah. And it's happens very quickly, obviously. It's over a few days still. And again, it's really upsetting for them, even though they've not known him very long at all. I think you can see like the huge contrast there between his like, put-together self and then even when he's like dishevelled, he still looks good for that whatever word it was, the French word. Deshabille. Deshabille. And Igor's the one who's actually prepared and capable to do it, despite being like the least at home with killing, because mm-hmm. it's, it's part of what Igor's know. Mm-hmm. I guess I think it's like Vimes and Angora have got so invested in helping this particular yeah. squad and like bearing in mind, we've seen a bit of already, and we'll see some more of Vimes and Angua, not werewolf fans, not uh, not vampire fans, yeah, yeah, big werewolf <laughs> fans, um, very much not vampire fans, but they they want to help this vampire. Yeah, I think they're not vampire fans on the whole, like the the society vampires, but they know Otto Shriek. They, they you know, they've yeah, they met a couple decent ones now, I guess, and they can see that Maladite is, you know. Maybe a vampire, but is also still a teenager that's really struggling. Yeah, poor soul. Even if they've been a teenager for a while. Yeah, and I think like William DeWard's the same, isn't he? He's trying to do the documentarian thing yes. a little bit, but he's like, "Here's all the info, actually, and stop being a twat." Anyway, who else have we got? Uh, Shufty slash Betty. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we get a bit more context for the boy that she was traveling, or the boy that she's trying to find, Johnny. Johnny. <laughs> Just Johnny. Yep. <laughs> yeah you can extrapolate from that sorry <laughs> and after she sort of explained it and how he left with the sixpence because he got called away to war mm-hmm. and she says um to polly i expect you think i'm a silly girl and polly's response is a foolish woman perhaps yes. and there's something very sweet about this kind of affirming 
you didn't do anything that bad or that stupid yeah. like in the grand scheme of things you could have done. And, you know, she talks about whirlwind romance and said, let's not talk about being silly and foolish. We, we've got a god who hates jigsaws and the colour blue. Yeah, absolutely. How do you expect to act like a sane person yeah. in times like this? And But, of course, the, the terror there is that we, this is a time and a place where she could be sent away. To somewhere like to, the girls yeah, working yeah, yeah. at school. And, yeah, yeah. And Ed Polly says at the end of that bit, kind of, well, no, it's different now. They are you really going to let people just take yeah. you away somewhere like that after yeah. everything you've gone and done? Yeah, it's like you've got a sword. Yeah, hit them with <laughs> it. Right, let's talk about Blouse. Oh, yeah. Blouse, Actually, the fucking Clax magician. Love Blouse. Quick sidebar on his noble steed, Thalacephalos. Yeah, rip. Uh, well, she's been let loose to go and do her own thing, so not necessarily dead. I mean... I reckon that horse could survive in the wild. Oh, maybe. I was about to say, generally, you turn a horse loose in the woods somewhere like this, it's going to get eaten by wolves, but they might give it a wide berth. Yeah. Like, I feel like that horse could kick a wolf. Yeah. Fair. Okay. Yeah. We'll, we'll pretend she's fine. Uh, I mean, assume. <laughs> uh, so, Alexander the Great, who. Uh, so, Thalassophilus has been yeah. named after General Tacticus. Alexander ah, the Great yeah. was one of the inspirations for Tacticus, and his steed was named Bucephalus. Uh, which translated as ox head. Apparently, it was a very stubborn horse. Good. So the cephalos suffix is head. I was trying to find etymology for the thala part of it. So going back to Greek, which is what we're looking at here, something like an inner chamber, a bedroom, or a bed. The Discworld fandom wiki suggests that thalame could be a lair or a cave, so it could be something like empty head. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which uh, I, I like that interpretation, so I'm going with that's uh, that's Thalassephalos. Good, that's good. Um, another small, like classical reference is Blouse's auntie, who she who he references. Don't see many old women with beards, eh? Except my auntie Parthenope, as I recall. Uh, Parthenope was a siren. Oh, was she? Yeah, that's nice. That one. But yeah, Blouse really early on in this section asked Polly, "Do the men talk about me?" Oh yeah, he's sweet. And it's, it's like quite an early inkling of his like hopes for a famous last stand. Mm. He wants to be talked about. He's got, he's got the same kind of idea of famous last stands and things as the the silver horde do. Except yes. he's in a more grounded place in the Discworld, and he is not Cohen, obviously, and. It's that you you get this kind of and here's the grand idea and here's what would happen thing that Fractal likes to do. Yes, very much down so. to reality. Although of course with Cohen, it's like and here's what actually happens because we're brilliant. <laughs> yeah, Blouse hasn't had a chance to have the brilliant bit yet. Um, but it's very sweet all the same, and you can kind of understand the motivation of it as well. He's this mm. blanket counter who's suddenly been sent to the front, and it's very much like. If I have to suddenly be sent to the front, then fine. I'm going to bloody well be sent to the front and I'm yeah. going to do it properly, gosh darn it. Yeah, and I mean, it turns out he is extremely clever. Um, yes. One of those minds that would probably have been wasted as a low-level bureaucrat because he's not, he didn't have the confidence to push himself forward like that. Yeah. And now he's been dropped into this and just just off the top of his head just goes off on one about the, the class the squeezing and different algorithm. squeezing algorithms and different coloured filters and really impresses the press. Polly gets a little bit in trouble with Blouse slightly mm. later on 
uh, when she's trying to not be sent off to fetch the tea while they've got this captive and they're sort of arguing over what to do with him. Mm. And um, he does this, you are my Batman after all. I think I run a happy ship here, but I will be a black maid, please. It was like being savaged by a goldfish. <laughs> and I imagine like being savaged by a goldfish. You, uh, you, you kind of just back off because... You don't oh, want to fight the goldfish. goldfish. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> well, you, speaking of blouse fighting, can I talk about blouse and jackram? Yes. Because yes, uh, this has really fascinated me as I've like watched this relationship grow through this section of the book. Mm-hmm. So near the beginning, they're about to attack this Clax Tower they found and he's holding jackram back. Mm-hmm. And it's because he wants them to finish sending their message. He has thought this through. He has a good reason for doing what he's doing. Yeah. But jackram is infuriated. Mm. Jackram subsided, but only into the deceptive karma volcano waiting to explode. Yeah. And he's still, no matter how furious he is, he is still doing as he's told by the officer. Yeah. And then when we get into he's arguing with Blouse over how to interrogate this prisoner, and he's so frustrated with the fact that he's being overseen. He is mm. used to dumb officers mm-hmm. that tell him to go and do what he wants to do, but he's actually got this very clever officer if he's not willing to admit it. Mm. Um, and I, I can relate to that particular frustration. You're so used to being left to go and do your own thing that when you yeah. suddenly start getting managed, it's enraging. I thought the, the second bit with the light signals and all of that. Oh, where he's um, actually sending the message and diverting them. And he keeps trying to talk over Blouse and Blouse is like being quite patient with him and then eventually having a go at him. Like, do you understand, Sergeant Jackram? And the thing is, Jackram is smart enough to have got it, to have understood it if he'd just listened for a second. But he's so convinced that Blouse is useless that he can't see it. He just can't see past that one in his head fact that Blouse is stupid and can't do anything practical. Yeah. So that even when faced with something for Jackram would that would be quite simple to grasp if not think of because you know he's not a technological man necessarily um, yeah. he just he needs to be properly yelled at before he gets it and even then he manages to kind of backpedal him his like mental state into the idea where Blouse is stupid yeah very much so um, and Blouse doesn't really help himself with no. the um, old woman lorks me old feet no 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 <laughs> But he can't see that, you know, he could be really useful. And if they'd worked together on a few more things, yeah. this, this bit might have been less painful to get through, although, you know, it went pretty well in the end. Very much so. And just before you get that sending the clacks messages bit, we get Blouse tries to call Jackram out for encouraging Shafti to loot. Mm-hmm. And uh, Jackram sort of says, oh, no, we're allowed to loot, blah, 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 re- uh, regulation. And Blouse checks. Yes. And then checks the regulation Jackram made up to be allowed to be re-recruited after being given his papers. Yeah. And sort of does this nod of, yep, yep, that's definitely all in here too. And it's this very, hey, ha, I've got one over on you thing. And Jackram's absolute fury. And Polly's mm. very reasonable. Like, you quoted chapter and verse. You you know you ran that risk. Yeah. And then a little, I think it's a little bit later, Blas kind of does the nice version of that where he gives Jackram his official excuse for still working until the age of uh, 43, was it? 45? 47? <laughs> War shows hard on a soldier's yeah, face, yeah. sir. <laughs> it's, a really, it's a really incredible moment of tension because we've built up this whole shaving thing mm-hmm. and then we've also seen Jackram get 
wound tighter and tighter through this whole section mm-hmm. till what we get is Jackram shaving blouse with a mm. very sharp razor yes. while blouse is bringing up this paperwork situation. Yeah. And it's a genuine moment of fear. You could genuinely see Jackram killing the officer in that moment. Mm. And obviously he doesn't. And no. blouse does the, of course, there's been a problem with the paperwork and I'll put an explanatory note in your pamphlet. Mm. Do we think at this point that blouse was too silly to realize his predicament like the risk he was taking or do you think it was a genuine like negotiation i'm making myself vulnerable in the second so that you will listen to what i'm saying i don't know i feel like the motivation was i feel like that blouse might have had a moment of fear there i think blouse was clever enough to know that he might have pushed jackram too far yeah yeah there's also at the same moment, actually, it's such a tense scene all around because at that point, Jackram has just shown his cards that he knows Polly is Polly. Yes. Um, and he said, they're not men looking at Polly. And then yeah. they're boys to blouse. <laughs> and does the thing about how they've lied about their ages and stuff. Yeah. So, yeah. So I think the blouse and Jackram tension build in this section is a really interesting detail. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Jack Jackram as a whole, as I said, I fucking love how he's portrayed in this whole thing as this kind of supernatural entity a lot of the time, and then kind of shrinking back down to quite petty, um, unreasonable sergeant. While while always like having a good motivation, he's really like obviously being a bit of a twit at some parts. Yeah. Um, but then like he's very Deus Ex Machina in other parts. Well, yeah. The moment you were to- your quote that the. the- devil shall be my sergeant moment uh, mm. after this captive's been killed and Polly's thinking he played a game with us as pieces and won. He he was puppet mastering. Yeah, yeah. He's He is genuinely this terrifying thing. And as I said, there's this feeling of also wanting him to be pleased with you. Yeah. There was the way he didn't bully what he, you know, he treated Waza almost like a, a child. He had this almost fatherly concern, but with Tonka and with Polly and with Maladite, he pushed all the time, wanting you to push back. Yeah. As Jackram is kind of like a force of nature, I think is illustrated as well by the fact Pratchett, more than any of the other characters in here, far more, I'd say, uses a lot of similar metaphor to describe him and describe what he's doing all the time. So you mentioned before, like the deceptive calm of the volcano, the dog on the leash. Um, he was bearing down on him like a landslide. He was, you know, all yeah. of this is very, very Jack from all the way through. And yeah, I just, I, I just love the switching between human and superhuman. And then like right near the end, when he's talking to Polly about what what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Are you going to shoot him? Who's going to reload? Uh, you know a few tricks. Do you know enough tricks? There's something yes. the other. And at that point, he's kind of, because we're on Polly's side or looking at through Polly's eyes, He's kind of portrayed as the unreasonable adult in the situation, stopping the famous five going ahead and doing that thing. But it's portrayed in such a way that you can also... He's right. Yeah. Because like, because we're being fueled by the narrative here, we know that they're probably not all going to get killed as soon as they go in. But he is perfectly reasonable in believing they will. And that he has seen a lot of people yeah. die. And this is why he's so frustrated with Blouse's sort of famous last stand attitude. Mm-hmm. Because it's one thing for a Rupert to go and die in a famous last stand, but... He doesn't want to lose his little lads to that same idea. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because he's portrayed as this this huge force of nature of a character, this mm. larger than life thing, that's why the frustration is so impressive when they say, all right, let's have it out. I'm a woman, we're all women, and he just doesn't react. Yeah. And but- it's like throwing a punch and not hitting anything, so your fist yes, keeps yeah. going. Yeah. 
Yeah, this was all of their big secret. This was the this was the tension filled for them. Uh, Jack Rub, his real display of emotion here was when mm-hmm. he was asked to like dress up in disguise when uh, like as a sunflower or whatever it was. <laughs> like the idea of not being a soldier, not being in his uniform, because obviously there's a whole thing there about being tied up in the uniform and the, the hat, the very Pratchett thing, the hat. This is my identity now. Yes, and the shilling around his neck. And this is the thing, we do see Jackram semi out of uniform, he takes his jacket off mm-hmm. and sits there in a grubby vest so mm-hmm. that you can see the shilling in the locket, mm-hmm. um, but not when he's told to and not for camouflage, he's doing well, no, it because not on he's the march. having... Yeah. Yes, obviously you take your jacket off when you sit down by the river, but if exactly. I'm marching, I'm a soldier. Yeah. <laughs> I like the line where he surreptitiously shined his buttons. Yes. <laughs> As one does. <laughs> um, but yeah, after this big woman confrontation, and the whole reason they're bringing this up is because they're talking, and he explains that he, they're not the first women he's seen come through the army, mm-hmm. and they insist, right, no, we are going to dis- undisguise ourselves as washerwomen and go through the keep. Yeah. And um, Polly says, we're still going, Sarge, sorry. And he's like, oh, don't say sorry. You were doing so well <laughs> up till then. <laughs> And it's interesting at this point, again, it's very story, it's very um, uh, established kind of narrative structure. They are going to lose their mentor, their deus ex machina at this point. This is Gandalf falling into the ravine. Yes. They're going to lose their superpower for a bit now. Yeah, they've got to go and mm-hmm. go on without their, what's it, and test themselves. Hear his words echo in their head in a very trophy dramatic way if this were on screen. And eventually hear them echoing elsewhere. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yes, we also learn in this section that Strappy ran away because of Jackram. Yeah. And we Wait. knew that Strappy was scared already. We saw Strappy piss himself. Mm-hmm. But it was Jackram who had a quiet word with Strappy about exactly what accidents could happen to someone at the front. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm guessing because Jackram didn't want him around fucking with things because he knew he would he knew it by that point that all the lads weren't lads he knew that strappy was the kind of fucker who would really mess things up for everybody and he was anyway and he managed to do it as he snuck out at night but he would have done a lot more damage perhaps if he'd been given the time to think it through yeah this is impressive like strappy is not in this bit at all but he's such a prick from a distance (laughs) with what he's done with the coffee machine and taking polly's hair yeah yeah. <laughs> Just again, it's impressive villain. I know he's not really a villain. He's a nasty little. I don't think he deserves the title villain. He's just this very nasty man. But it's one of my favourite things Pratchett can do incredibly well is write incredibly nasty little men that we hate with very few things need to happen with these nasty little men for us to hate us. Hate yeah. them. And again, I'm going to keep referencing this fucking interview. I'm going to link Pratchett was saying about character building. Like he knows he's doing this. It's deliberate. You can tell a lot about a character by, and he's these words, by the way they laugh, by the way they clap their hands. And you can communicate a lot just with these little things. And we keep mentioning the stupid laughs of the villains. Yeah. Um, and obviously, like, Straffy is a really, yeah, a really good example of that. And that he did have a fair bit of dialogue, to be fair, and like a fair bit of emotional impact on the characters. But he was, yeah, he was gone by section two. And yep. he's still fucking with everybody. And yeah, no, the, the way that they clap their hands is also a very specific one for me because I developed such an intense loathing mm. of managers who clap their hands and say, right, guys. Oh, wait, no, I have one more thing about, uh, sorry, about Blast and Jackram. Um, oh, yeah? The fact that Jackram obviously very into the idea of being a soldier, very into the idea of staying regimental, keeping his uniform on. 
I think Blouse has a lot of that as well in that they could have found a bit more common ground in here because Blouse really didn't like the idea of being guerrilla fighters or irregulars. He's like, no, we are not irregulars. We are this regiment. We are soldiers. Yes. Oh, and I quickly want to mention uh, William DeWord just mm. because he gets face. he's very much being threatened with a crossbow while trying to go to the loo and his first response is, can I have an interview? Yes. And like, he's also in peril and grammatically correct somebody, of course. Yep. Uh, just incredibly consistent character work for one of my very favourite Discworld characters. Yep, no character development needed for Duarte. <laughs> he has done his character development. <laughs> He's we fully had baked. daddy issues. He's finished now. I understand <laughs> that Sakarissa Cripslock is like probably back in Ankh-Morpork running like that side of the times, but I also wish I could like see Sakarissa in this situation. Hmm getting annoyed at the men being trying to be nugganatic at her. Yeah. Quickly, locations. Uh, I know we don't go to Ankh-Morpork, but it was something we were tracking for a while, was mm. does a book mention Ankh-Morpork? And we mm. went a really long time. And we have had it recently. I don't think that Ankh-Morpork gets a single mention in uh, We Free Men. I think you might be right. But outside of that, it's been a long time since we've not had. And so I think it's interesting to look at the way Ankh-Morpork's affecting this mm. place as a foreign power, because we saw a lot of that in The Fifth Elephant. Vimes going and being the ambassador. Yeah, but we saw it as more of a Uberwald is more on a level with Ankh-Morpork in terms of power. Perhaps not quite, but getting yeah. there. But now we actually get to see Ankh-Morpork's influence on a small state. Mm. And it mirrors quite well round world stuff. You get left alone until you pull down an important bond of infrastructure for a big country kind of thing. Yes, very much so. And that's what's happening here. And we get our depiction in the cartoon of specifically Morporkia and William DeWord explaining like, yes, I'm an Ankh-Morpork citizen. It shelters me under its wide and rather greasy wing. <laughs> I'll tell you what, I'm going to talk about birds later and I forgot to include that. <laughs> I just think it's great that like there's this weird Borogravian national pride mm. and they argue about patriotism and there's that line from the last section, you know, the only good bit of country is is you people here in this tent. Yes. And Ankh-Morpork is, uh, I, I don't know, liberated and safe enough mm -hmm. that if you're from Ankh-Morpork, you're just able to be a total dick about it and it doesn't feel transgressive. Like yeah. if someone from Ankh-Morpork was like super proud of it, they'd be really sus. Yes. Heinrich had a reputation locally for cunning, but Ankh-Morpork had overtaken cunning a thousand years ago, had sped past devious, had left artful far behind, and had now, by a roundabout route, arrived at straightforward. And I think that largely works yeah. with the promotion of Vimes to Duke. <laughs> Definitely helps, doesn't it, when your ambassador cannot be bothered with any of this. <laughs> oh, fucking up. I know, we don't, I know we've not got vibes of character, but the idea that everyone thinks he eats raw meat now, and he's like, can't be bothered to explain to Red why that's a weird thing to tell people. And he's just like, oh, I mean, it's probably won't do me any harm. All right, fine. Yeah, go with that <laughs> I one. Eat strips of raw meat. <laughs> oh, and bless, I forgot to mention Vimes this, but Reg, Reg being so frustrated with the zombies not embracing their new opportunities that he's ranting about it and doesn't notice that the bird's eating his fingers. And he can't stick them down his throat. <laughs> it's like, poor Reg, but oh, Reg. Yeah. Reg. Anyway. Um, oh, yeah, in the other location, obviously, we finally see Neck Keep. And yeah. yes, I'm just shoehorning in another quote. Sure. If there is a fairy tale scale for castles where the top end is occupied by those white spire-encrusted castles with blue pointy roofs, then Neck Keep was low, black, and clung to its outcrop like a storm cloud. Yeah. 
That's good. I like that. You can definitely see it. It's it's a beautiful way to just describe something by exactly what it isn't. Yes. Yeah, hung in the air much in the same way, way Bricks did Bricks not. didn't. Yeah. <laughs> like, this is the least Disneyland. <laughs> you are the opposite of Batman. <laughs> How many popular culture references can we get in? Um, also, the, the neck was described in uh, what I thought was quite an interesting way because we were talking about the chalk last month, obviously. And how um, in Chalkland, a lot of the fertile soil gets washed down. So I think Mm -hmm. my brain was primed for it. And it said that the Neck Valley was rich and fertile. And it was from here that the fertility had been washed up. It was a landscape of ravines and thick scrub woodland with a few small communities practically living living from the poverty-stricken soil. That's such a good description. This is whereabouts they're having the battle and stuff, isn't it? Yeah. 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 Hmm. Ravines. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Little M sits hit Joanna at the same time. I said something very stupid. <laughs> Ravines. Ravines. <laughs> right. Should we take five? <laughs> so, Joanna, what uh, little bits do you. I see you've uh, put what you might think is sneakily, but really isn't. Several little bits we liked under one bullet point. Yeah, I 100% have. Well, we were talking last week about how this book had just genuinely had some really funny moments. Mm -hmm. And I think, I know with some of the stuff we've covered recently, like obviously Nightwatch was so very dark and last week we were very caught up in all the excitement of new character and folklore. Yeah. It's rare we actually take a moment just to appreciate how fucking funny these books are. Yeah, yeah. And there were so (laughs) many laugh out loud moments in this section. And Polly is about to shave blouse and Jackram says, do you think you could kill a man today? And she looks at the razor. I'm sorry, sir. I think I could, sir. <laughs> I mentioned this line briefly last week, but um, when Blouse says on uh, Captain Horrence, he was pressing his suit in no small way, was he not? He didn't have ironing in mind, sir. Uh, and then there's a follow-up when they're discussing the washerwomen going yeah. in to help at the keep. <laughs> and um, Jackram says it doesn't always stop at washing neither. Sergeant, there are young men here. They'll have to find out about ironing and darning sooner rather than later. <laughs> There's the great little footnote when someone's dropped a crossbow which fi- fired into the air, failed to hit anything, especially a duck. Yeah. It drifted in the breeze a little, landed in an oak tree some 30 feet away where it missed a squirrel. <laughs> and Pratchett has a particular gift as well for picking the animal names that are the funniest. Like, duck is just inevitably funny, and squirrel yeah. is just a very funny word to end a sentence with. Yeah. So we've got a fun little trope subversion. You can see why this works so well on stage. Like, this is one of the ones that's most done on stage, isn't it? All these little one-liners yes. are just big audience, engage- audience engagement laughter stuff. I would like to see a stage production of this, actually. I mean, mm. I'd love to do one, but um, I haven't got the time or the money to organise that. Mm. Yeah, bollocks to that. <laughs> Believe me, it's occurred to me. Um, oh, yeah, and there's a great little conversation that's just very cleverly funny. Blouse is asking about sending pictures, how they get the pictures mm. back to the uh, Angmore Pork Times, Times office. How do you get the pictures back so quickly? Magic, I assume. And... The question is very, obviously, we know magic does exist on the Discworld. Mm. Probably not a lot of it in Boragravia, I assume, witches are burned at the stake very quickly. And That seems likely. I don't think there's much of a university situation going on for wizards. No. So it's very much a, I know absolutely nothing about this, it must be magic sort of question. Mm. And the response is this dead plan, no, wizards are expensive, and Vimes has said there'll be no first use of magic. Yes. 
Uh, so we use clacks. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, yes, no, I can see magic is a reasonable thing because we do have access to it. But no, we won't be using wizards and we won't have yes. the first use thing. And then blouse me like very quickly works out what it actually is, which kind of makes it more fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Flip reverses um, it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and uh, another sort of blouse just being slightly, uh, what's the word? Not to be overconfident. Mm-hmm. Uh, I dare say our enemy feels impregnable just because he commands a heavily armed fort on a rocky crag with walls 100 feet high and 20 feet thick. <laughs> Which is terrible and very funny. And then it's quite near to the bit where Jackram says, I wouldn't try it with a thousand men. And Blau said, ah, but I might try it with half a dozen. Which is actually yes. a very good overconfident line and has the ring of a, it's a million to one chance, but it might just work. There's a loss of million to one chance that might just work vibe. Mm, yes, we don't need to say it anymore. We know. No, we know. <laughs> we know the vibe. So yes, just all those brilliant little comedy moments. I want to <laughs> take a moment to appreciate. It is a very funny book. It's great. I strongly disagree with a couple of people I've seen talking online about how a show practice lost a sense of humour and whatever. I was like, it's fucking full of jokes. Like, yeah. <laughs> come on. It's full of jokes. And so much of the comedy comes from the fact that we've basically got a group of teenagers hanging mm. around with a couple of very different types of oblivious adults looking after them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I've got, I just made a couple notes on military slang because obviously mm-hmm. it's mentioned a couple of times here. I thought it's funny how you get lines like slipping easily into the slang that only learned 10 hours ago kind of thing. Oh, yeah. So a couple of the ones we've learned here, obviously, are Salup, sweet milky tea. We've got Scubbo, which is a weird, horrible stew thing. We've got Rupert, which according to Wikipedia, Rupert would be a Rodney on Round World. Ah. Mm-hmm. So I've, I've got a little list of a glossary of army terms on Wikipedia. But that wasn't as fun as asking a couple of people I know about military slang. So my mum was brought up a military brat. My granddad was a major. And so I grew up with like the normal few military words that... I'm sure a lot of people do, which is like mufti for casual clothes, all that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and like bivy for sleeping bag, that kind of nonsense. Mum liked the fact that the raft used to be called crabs, I think it was. Yeah. Crab airline. And she was told when she was a kid that this was because the raft flew sideways and it was a joke, it was a tease. Yes. Um, but growing up, she realised it probably had more to do with like crabs like lice and then i asked sterling who was our friend in the navy and he mm-hmm. said it's more likely that it's um because it's crab blue is the color of the thing yeah. so i think i don't know maybe we've got a little folk etymology or retconning or whatever and sterling's favorite slang he contributed was uh space pilot which is an officer who thinks they know everything and believes sheer confidence will see them through an exercise excellent a la blouse and sits down when he wheezes and wears his mum's jeans <laughs> Which means somebody exceptionally weird and or homeschooled. Strappy. <laughs> Actually, I feel like we can't use like sits down as he wheeze as some kind of criticism. No, um, but it's just a very... <laughs> but Strappy wears his mum's jeans. For sure. Um, I just thought that was funny. Then I had, well, it kind of related, the political po- cartoon that you were talking about. Yes. It's shown in the beginning of the paperback. Yeah. Um, and I imagine the hardback. And it is mentioned in this section. Varagravia, uh, characterised as this tiny little person standing on a mountain, kicking Slovenia in the socks um, yes. as he walks with Ang Morpork. It's done in that kind of old political cartoon style. And I love that shit. The beautifully calli- calligraphed. Is that how you say calligraphied? Calligraphed? Yeah, why not? Captions on like these huge character labels sometimes. Not in this 
a particular example, but you know, the ones I mean where it's like talking about a political concept and it'll be like the economy on a, a cannonball or something as it yeah. smashes into a wall labeled uh, France. I don't know. Why would the economy destroy <laughs> France? We won't know. <laughs> Doesn't matter. Just needs to look dramatic. Um, and like the intricate shading and all of that. Uh, so Punch Magazine is obviously like the master of this sort of thing. And mm-hmm. the Ank Morpork Times columnist, Fizz. Yeah, this is probably a reference to um, in its 19th century heyday, Punch employed a house cartoonist called Fizz, P-H-I-Z, short for like Fizzog, which is a slang term for a face. Yeah. And he was Hablet Knight Brown, who was um, an illustrator who also uh, worked on Charles Dickens' Pickwick Papers. Oh. Um, And quite a lot of these actually worked on books we would definitely recognize. So um, I think the one in this book, I think it also kind of resembles another Punch artist called John Tenniel, and he did Alice in Wonderland illustrations. Oh, amazing. Yeah. I know those ones. And I think most closely the art style here, though, and Paul Kidby's obviously very good at referencing art styles, uh, mm. resembles uh, James Gilray. So, oh, do you have thingy open? Oh, I see the thing you mean. Yes, very yeah. much that style. Yeah, and, it, and it's really clever because this is the kind of shading that could be in something that could be sent with that sort of algorithm over the cracks, from what I understand, because it's like line shading. Ha, good point. Um, which for indicating like a grayscale shade, again, I don't fully understand how it works, but I could understand how this sort of shading would help. Mm, yeah. As I say that one, um, um, so uh, Gilray is earlier than Tenniel and Fizz. So he's like mm-hmm. 1700s. So that's a very oh, nice, right. nice and early one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, uh, the whole history of like political cartoons is very interesting. And maybe a rabbit hole one day, who can say? Yes. Watch out, patrons. Watch out. That's a threat, not a promise. <laughs> <laughs> I also really like just a detail in the thing that uh, on the sort of large shield, oh, it's like the train or the bustle of the dress that more mm-hmm. Paul Cure is wearing. Oh, yeah. You can just see a little owl at the top above the speech bubble. And it very much looks like it is a hippo holding a shield on the dress. Oh, yes. It's the Ankh Morpork coat of arms. Yeah. Yeah. Lovely. I like the little owl. Oh, if all could be so good at details. And yes, I like the implication of a hippo. Mm, The implication of a hippo. (laughs) Yes, I enjoy that. That for your royal prerogative, you blaggard. Oh, my succession that such a small thing could hurt so much. <laughs> oh, my swain, our fair liaison will be cut short. <laughs> Love. <laughs> That's not how I imagine more porkier speaking. No, I, I don't know. I think she would have a more like deep, croaky voice. So it's interesting that you've taken away your ill voice and done a falsetto. <laughs> I picture her very as, um, uh, what's the name from EastEnders? Get out of my pub, that one. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. 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 Nice. I like it. Uh, <laughs> so what was your last LVL, Joanna? To use an unnecessary abbreviation and even more unnecessary explanation. Oh, yeah. Polly is walking through the woods and hearing the peaceful bird song and thinking about how unpeaceful the bird song is once you've learned what birds are <laughs> songing about. <laughs> All around you, the world is shouting, bugger off, this is my bush. Ah, the nest thief. Have sex with me. I can make my chest big and red. <laughs> Has this been one of the ones that stuck with you through the years? Yeah, this is something that I, has lived with me since I first read it. And occasionally when I'm hearing birdsong, I'll just make up little narrations to yeah. myself in my head. <laughs> it's a nice way to amuse yourself on a walk. It is, absolutely. Speaking of birds, Francine, do you want to have a bigger bird conversation? Sure, although not quite to the level of big bird, probably. But yeah, so birds, I've picked the talking point because why not? 
I obviously got very invested in that one quote last week. So I was like, why not dive in? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so birds are used as like a motif through this book, uh, through this section particularly, I'd say, just because we're on the journey here. We're doing the hero's journey. We're doing a lot of walking and there's a lot of chance for birdsong in the woods. Mm-hmm. It underlines the fact that Polly is very into ornithology and it keeps reminding us of this because she's very specific with her observations. It's also used to kind of demonstrate the loudness of a silence and Mm -hmm. how a silence filled with noise is louder, as we've talked about explicitly in We Free Men, possibly not in this one. Mm -hmm. So a couple of examples of that are when William DeWord is talking to Blouse and they say you, he began to chuckle, they say you overpowered Prince Heinrich and his guard and stole his boots and made him hop away in the altogether. In a thicket some way off, a nightingale sang. For quite a while, uninterrupted. Then Blouse said, ha, no, you are in fact wrong. <laughs> and then after, did you kill that old couple in the woods? Far off, there was the call of a female blue-capped woodpecker. Yeah, that was that was a fucking moment. Yeah, and there's another one with like a heron honking and all of that kind of stuff. It's used a few times to kind of show a silent pause. And I like yeah. how he's picked out a different a specific bird each time. A, because it's probably a delightful thing to think about. And B, because, yeah, we're looking at it through Polly's eyes and Polly knows what the birds are. So why would she just say a bird chirped in the distance? That wouldn't make any sense. Yes. There are also a couple of just bird metaphors throughout. I think maybe more than would be usually, like you pointed out, and I've missed entirely, the greasy wing of Ankh Morfolk, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> sheltering William de Word. Um, also, when Blouse and Jack Rum are arguing and they turn back to Polly and she kind of melts the tension a bit, is their expression changed? If they'd been birds, their feathers would have gently settled back. Yes. And then a little later, because uh, picking up on your bird song, actually, just before the turkey miracle, which is in itself a bird thing, um, <laughs> she says she should have listen to the bird song she realized later the shrill calls in the distance would have told her the news if only she'd been calm enough to listen that just the the fact that she'd been so overly hyped up to just no, to completely forget her nature almost because this is constantly what she's thinking about the whole time thought that was interesting yeah we've got the the turkey miracle itself which yeah and polly's thinking about uh, the Duchess who said she could move small things. How small is the is a thought in the mind of a bird? Yes. Which, a, ooh, cool line. Yeah. B, we kind of know that because equal rights. Uh, <laughs> when Esk borrows a bird, well, we don't know how small thought would be, but we do know uh, the eagle's mind is very small and in a, like a small purple arrow. I went and checked. Um, yes. <laughs> and in fact, like, so this just got me thinking generally like um, of birds as metaphorical techniques obviously we've had the eagle vorbis rant uh, <laughs> birds signifying the divine or a character in general very good uh the eagle oh my god vorbis the eagle but the eagle is vorbis and all vorbis of this is the eagle yeah, yes yeah. we've very yeah. much had yeah this. we've done that we've had no, the I phoenix reckon. the phoenix was a thing yeah, the phoenix does definitely um, do a thing. I'm saying that. I've forgotten which one it was. I think it might have been... That was in Lords and Ladies. Lords and Ladies no, thing. Carpe Joculum. Carpe Joculum. Oh, in which case, also, magpies. Yes. <laughs> Very bird heavy. Um, we've got the last hero and Leonard's gorgeous lines. Uh, when the gods say, if we'd wanted men to fly, we would have given you wings. And Leonard said, you gave me wings when you showed me birds. Yes. And, ooh, fucking love that still. And more, I would say, connected to 
roundwell trope. Reaper Man, I thought it was a really good example of this. So birds and prisoners metaphor, very big. Very yes. big in literature. Huge. Um, <laughs> not only literature, I think Sweeney Todd and Joanna and the fucking bird caged yep. and all of this stuff. And so, so, so many bits of literature where the prisoner sits and watches the birds. And in Reaper Man, this is a big uh, symbol, I guess. And Bill Dore becoming human, part of it is him realizing why a prisoner would sit and watch the birds and tame them and allow them into the cell. And finally, when death is talking to Azrael, and he says, Lord, will you grant me just a little time for the proper balance of things to return what was given for the sake of prisoners and the flight of birds? Just the more I think about it, the more of this kind of bird motif is through practice stuff. And I just I love the way he loves birds. Yes. It's my conclusion. <laughs> and honestly, I hadn't even thought about the fact that just any bird mention is more detailed here because it's it because it's from Polly's point of view. That hadn't occurred to me because it just absorbed into the book so well it's subtle but mm. it's yeah it's so present there and there's there's a great moment as well where one of the other girls sort of tries to do a bird call and polly makes a note oh, yeah. to uh, <laughs> teach them some bird calls that actually sound like birds yeah. that would be in this forest or is it something like oh yes that's the bird call uh, of the person who doesn't know what birds sound like uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> fucking love that yeah ah uh, yes good i love it very much um and do you have thoughts on something I can't relate to birds at all? <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. There's no easy segue here. So this book goes into, and this is kind of two talking points planned into one, but this book goes into the different sides to things a lot. And obviously we like looking at two sides of a coin or we do, we do. three sides of a really fucking weird coin as it well, might be. Edge. We like edges. We do like edges. Bit, let's get a bit liminal. Should we get liminal? <laughs> yes, let's get liminal again. Um, so... Looking at the war side of things first, and there's this sort of debate between this soldier thing, this war versus murder versus killing, mm -hmm. and what the difference is. And it starts really early on. They find the charcoal burners, and then they find yeah. the cheesemonger's badge. Yes. And they have this very, are we the baddies mm. moment, mm. because they've suddenly realised that a lot of their side are de deserters. And not only deserters, but violent killing deserters. Yeah, this is a horrific thing. They yeah. found two people who have been murdered who who didn't need to be murdered. No, obviously, no one needs to be murdered. No. You know, I mean, these weren't people. These weren't people Strappy fighting back. To be murdered. Strappy does still need to be murdered. Mm. He's unfortunately still alive. And there's this discussion of so uh, Blouts is talking about the fact that you know deserters are a very bad business, mm. and um, they've obviously talked to Deward once already. And Blouse says, you know, the, the newspaper man says there's been a great many desertions. And this is Blouse wanting to admit that he's he's been struggling for this whole book with the fact that the orders we've been given haven't been the right ones. Mm. It's very it's not ours to question why, but I'd really like to fucking question why grit yeah. through gritted teeth. And he knows that things are going very badly, but he's not meant to tell his men. And no. But he will. <laughs> and he wants Jackram to be on his side a bit with this, but Jackram is obviously in a very different way, completely unwilling to criticise the military. Mm -hmm. Yes. So yeah, Blouse brings up these desertions and sort of this hint of it's strange so many would, men would desert from a winning side. Mm. And Jackram comes back with, yeah, but whose side is the is the newspaper guy on? Mm. There's like a bullheadedness to it because 
they've just been confronted with the fact that, yeah, you've got very nasty disasters out there doing very nasty shit. Yeah, and it would be nice to have something to cling on to to mean maybe we don't have to just take as fact that it was our side who did that. Uh, yeah, yeah. or that there's any kind of reason. Um, when Polly sits down with Jackram the day after the captive that they had has mm. been killed at Jackram's mm-hmm. hand mm-hmm. and Blouse has taken a bit of a clip to the earlobe and Polly sits down and says, right, well, you murdered that guy. Mm-hmm. And Jackram says, prove it. And she's talking about the fact she was setting up. And it's it's good to see her actually confront Jackram, especially, oh, this is after that devil is my sergeant realisation mm. that we've been used as pawns thing. And Jackram has got a fair justification, which is what else would we have done with him? If we yeah. had left him here, he would have died. Yeah. Like, yeah, if it were would... up to me, I would have executed him like an officer. Yeah. But, what you know, the kind thing of leaving him behind alive, but leaving it so he can't follow us, tie him to a tree and let him kick wolves. Yeah. Yeah. But also, Jackram has very much been trained to kill and to justify these actions a lot yeah. more. And But who knows how horrible it is and would be for other people. So that's things like think you'll be man enough to stand when the metal meets the meat yes very like, much so it very visceral and we get that moment during the uh, the miracle of the turkey yes <laughs> and polly comes polly is getting ready to kill someone because otherwise he's going to see alice and she's thinking she wished she'd been trained stabbing sacks of straw yeah. until she'd been able to believe that all men were straw yeah. and comes to this realization of maybe that's why you do it you you do it be, to stop someone killing your mates yeah yeah, it's never for king and country or... No. Mm. And you get uh, Igorina's very specific view, which is that all war is murder because obviously the Eagles have this very specific, very heightened respect for life. Yeah, the Hippocratic Oath version yeah. of... Yeah, yeah. Uh, Definitely. The, I'm not sure what the Discworld equivalent of Hippocrates is. The whole thing about kind of focusing on the visceral nature of the killing here, I think is quite good. It, it doesn't go into like... A, unnecessary gory detail but it it I, I feel like just the phrase when the metal meets the meat reminds me of dan carlin's hardcore history podcast i really like mm-hmm. um and i think he does a really good job of really focusing and repeating the point that ancient warfare and warfare until very recently was this horrible up close terrible thing of and the having to stab somebody having to take a blade and put it in another human being is so far beyond most people it's yeah. very against our nature and there's also the idea of polly and the squad you know you're going to be pikemen uh, yeah. you're going to have a pointy yeah. stick and they'll be further away yeah okay so we have this dichotomy between these different i don't know flavors of mm-hmm. killing let's say yeah and it starts coming to a head with is there a better way to do any of this mm. that maybe involves Surely. not putting something pointy <laughs> in someone. Yeah. <laughs> and it's William DeWard talking to Blouse and uh, this point that I fucking love and which I think we talked about, you know, has come up as a theme somewhere else. Blouse has, um, once he's, you know, been a genius about the clacks, has said, oh, it's perfectly straightforward. Uh, I had to redefine the, the department's filing system. Um, people build something that works, then circumstances change. They have to tinker with it to make it continue working. Yeah. They're so busy tinkering, they cannot see that a whole much better idea would be would be to build a whole new system to deal with the new circumstances. Yeah. And I and swear, that quote, almost word for word, has popped up in a book and we've talked about it and I can't remember which. Listeners, please help. <laughs> but it is a favourite theme. Yes. It's we a like very it favourite theme. And we agree. <laughs> 
and it's a, and it's the word who tries to bring that back to politics and yeah. say, yeah, maybe not just in filing systems. Like maybe someone <laughs> needs to look at a country from the outside and go, yeah, could we do this less pointily? Yes. <laughs> I've had a lot of cough medicine. Okay, but so Polly trying to convince Blouse to talk to DeWord brings me to one of my favourite bits in the book because it's a theme we've returned to over and over again and it's very it's very good that this is in relation to William DeWord. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, sir, uh, the way people tell you lies, if they tell you enough white lies, they sort of show you what shape the truth is. Yeah, yeah, keep talking and it doesn't matter how like, how much bullshit you're talking i will get an idea of it yeah which brings me neatly into some gender related emotions oh a little bit of gender as a treat at the end a little bit of gender as a treat (laughs) because polly is is sort of repeatedly lying to herself she i I, you know you see i have this frustration we talked about right at the beginning of her being kind of taken for a boy which you add to last week's confusion about she was wearing a petticoat but she was definitely still very much a soldier wasn't she Mm mm-hmm and she's yeah, soldier not being sure. a gender here. <laughs> well, f- soldier is a gender for yeah. them. Women aren't allowed in the yeah. army. Yeah. You can't be a female soldier. And this goes into this conversation where they're having to unlearn a lot of lies, not so much that they tell themselves, but that they have been told about themselves. You know, as women, they have to be good girls. Bad girls go to the working school. Mm-hmm. Everything that they do is an abomination unto Nuggan. They uh, they can read, but they can't write. They can't wear trousers. Yeah. And they're having this conversation about, you know, if we're caught, we'll be beaten and sent back. And this is before we get to the whole conversation with Shafti. This is still fairly early on in the section. It's while Shafti's making a lovely little casserole. <laughs> uh, because Tonka's done a decent bit of hunting while she was out on guard. Oh, yeah. And they start talking about how they're treated so differently wearing the trousers. Mm. They're sort of saying, well, it doesn't feel very abominable. Like, it's quite comfortable. <laughs> Men talk to you differently. Um, they listen to you differently, too. Um, you're just another person. Like, if a girl walked down the street wearing a sword, a man would try and take it off her, and we get uh, Jade's ver- troll version of it. Mm. It's not right for a girl to wear lichen. Jade is naturally craggy and doesn't see where she should polish. <laughs> exactly. Which relatable as as a craggy person. I also I'm speaking of like Jade and gender, I liked it a bit later when Jack Crumb's like deflating the big reveal mm. and goes like, Yeah, I knew with you, I knew with you. Not sure about Maledict, who knows and with trolls, no offense, but who cares? I guess, uh, <laughs> none taken. <laughs> and like genuinely, I think there is none because as like pointed out earlier, trolls don't really care what humans think. Humans don't really care what trolls think about <laughs> and like she can relate to some of the aspects of it with the with yes. the um, with the girls, but so a lot of it's like, huh? Like there clearly is troll misogyny. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But the thing is, you have this whole conversation across this page about being treated differently because mm. when they're wearing trousers and not wearing yeah. trousers, you got a footnote that kind of undermines it at the end, which is just the woman. A woman always has half an onion left over, no matter the size of the onion, the dish, or the woman, which is like a really gendered comment to make. Like, like it, it's not an offensive comment. No, I'm I mean, not it's offended. Also, we've we've seen that exact joke before. Yeah, oh yeah, we have uh, seen that, was, that joke before. Was that Herida or Canina? One of those two. One of the early Pratchett women. But yes, but you're right, yes, it is a... But I think it's just yeah. a one-liner that Terry Pratchett wanted to reuse. No, and it's fine. It's a funny joke. Yeah. I don't mind it. Like, speaking as a non-binary person, I only have half an onion left over about half the time. Oh, that makes sense then, yeah. Yeah, yeah. This That's how that works. I don't always have half an onion. You just have half a stereotype, all of them, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
Oh, I'm sorry. No, only half of it stereotyped me. Thank you. Not very hungry. I'm constantly Vic- Victor Victoriaing my stereotypes. <laughs> <laughs> it makes uh, shopping for a swimming costume very difficult. No, yeah, no. It, it's again, it's not an offensive joke at all. It's just very funny to put such a gender-specific joke after a whole like two-page spread of talking about how gender is kind of irrelevant it's how uh, but they've presented a certain way and suddenly been treated very differently yeah yeah, yeah. (laughs) and there's this great moment slightly later on where i think alice who is obviously suffered a lot but is quite naive Mm. in so many ways says something along the lines of i think the world would be a lot better if it was run by women there wouldn't be any wars Mm-hmm. And then says, uh, of course, the book would consider this an abomination. Yeah. It might be an error. I'll consult the Duchess. Yeah, that's very loved. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and Polly's thinking about the response. And you only thought the world would be better if it was run by women if you didn't actually know many women. I mean, I know exactly the kind of women she's thinking about. Yes. <laughs> yeah, she is thinking about the Dimity scarf thing yeah. and the curtain twitching women mm-hmm. uh, watching to make sure everyone behaved properly. Yeah. And the half-hearted punishments uh, meted out by a result. But I do respect this thing of it's not the fact that it's specifically men or specifically women. It's the fact that people are being really shitty. Yeah, although I do think it's a certain... The problem with the women that Polly is thinking of yeah. running the world is that they are as much upholders yeah. of the patriarchy. Yeah, as, yeah. It, yeah. Exactly. They so, are upholding yeah, yeah. the patriarchy much more than the men are. The men are doling out these half-hearted punishments because of the curtain-twitching women. Yes. So, Although, again, that's the way Polly's seeing it at, yes. in her little village setting. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Although, as we'll find out, it all gets a bit complicated. I've seen a lot of annoying Tumblr discourse about this one, about how, yeah, no, if women ran this or that, what happens then? I get quite annoyed when the pendulum swings too far the other way from this and, like, women are worse, actually. Margaret Thatcher. Like, mm, there are definitely certain things all humans do just as shittily as each other. But I think there are certain things that really benefit from women yelling at people about it. Absolutely, yes. And maybe and that's I think- societal. Maybe it's societal. <laughs> well, it's a societal thing. Like I said, all these yeah. problems with what if women ran this instead is that you're still talking about a lot of this happening within mm. a fairly patriarchal society. Yeah. But I have also gone, we've gone off wildly on a tangent. What, I'm going to try and rope us. Surely not. <laughs> back in to the book Monstrous Regiment. A, I like the comedy of Blouse's reaction to it. Yeah. Absolutely noticing the masculinity of the others yeah. uh, and is therefore the only convincing <laughs> <Yeah>. woman. <laughs> None of you. <laughs> Because he's an officer, because the rest of them keep up their scratching and farting mm-hmm. and what have you to be convincing just in case, even though they all know about each other, mm-hmm. but they don't know if Jackram or especially Blouse have any idea. Because Blouse is an officer, Blouse doesn't scratch and fart and things. Yeah, yeah. there's a so, big difference there between, there's a lot more commonality perhaps between the working class. They can uh, emulate it a lot better than the, than the upper class. And Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sidebar, Rigglesworth, uh, Blouse's old school chum, who was very into the theatricals. I'm, I'm headcanning R- Rigglesworth as a trans woman. Yeah. Um, and uh, I hope she's living a happy and affirming life. So to circle this background to the point I was making about Polly telling lies to herself, mm-hmm. she has insist- been insisting, I'm doing this one thing, I'm getting my brother, I'm going home. Mm-hmm. 
Except she's also really fucking not willing to do that. Mm -hmm. And towards this section, we see her actually more out and out admitting it. Again, it's with that conversation with Shafti. She is not willing to go back to the world where she has to wear a dimity scarf and she is not allowed to run the Duchess. Yes. If we get out of this, there's going to be no schools and no beatings. Not for you or any of us. Not if we've got brains. Not if we're smart. Mm Mm-hmm. She might not have yet admitted to herself that she is in this for a much longer haul than just grabbing her brother and going home. But she has, I think, started to accept to herself that there is no safe to go back to without a lot of change. Yeah, She might not know the rest of her journey, but she knows which destination she is not heading for now. Yes. And by the process of elimination... We've got to the obscure reference for Neil. (laughs) If you say so. (laughs) Speaking of uh, gender roles, Mm -hmm. uh, in a more amusing way than for Igorina when she's talking about the kind of enforced gender roles within her society. Yeah. You know, she wants to do the surgery, the the incision part as well as the sewing up. And she says, and I think a woman on the slab would feel a lot better about things if she knew there was a female hand on the We Belong Dead switch. And I was like, We Belong Dead switch. That's that. In the final scene from The Bride of Frankenstein, 1935 movie, a famous line from Boris Karloff as the monster, as he's just about to blow himself and the bride to smithereens, he says, go, you live, to Frankenstein and Elizabeth, and Mm -hmm. then turning to Dr. Pretorius, you stay, we belong dead. Which is a hell of a a line. Yeah. (laughs) And then also, obviously, probably referring to a kill switch. Yes. Yeah. Cool. Right, I think that's everything we are going to say about part two of Monstrous Regiment. Certainly is. Uh, part three ends begins where part two ends and then goes to the end of the book. <laughs> Good! <laughs> Just in case you were wondering. Begins page 331 with, and one of the things they hadn't known was that it had edges. Mm-hmm. And we are going to go to the end of the book. Okay, until next week, dear listeners, when hopefully I'll be able to talk properly. Uh, you can find us on Instagram at the True Shall Make You Frat, on Twitter at Make You Frat Pod, on Facebook at the True Shall Make You Frat. Join our subreddit community, r slash TTSMYF. Email us your thoughts, queries, castle snacks, and bird calls, the True Shall Make You Frat Pod at gmail.com. If you would like to support our podcast financially, you can go to patreon.com forward slash the True Shall Make You Frat and exchange your hard earned pennies for all sorts of bonus nonsense. Don't forget, May 19th, True Shall Make You Frat presents Mark Burroughs, The Magic of Terry Pratchett. Uh, at the Hunts Club in Berries and Edmonds, please come because, like, I really want there to be an audience, guys. Yeah, there'll be an <laughs> audience. It would just be nice if lots of them knew us. It would be really cool if a bunch <laughs> of our, our egos. Like, <laughs> we would look really cool if a bunch of our listeners came. <laughs> I don't know, man, but sure. <laughs> to like no one but us and yeah. maybe Mark Burroughs. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Uh, ticket link in the show notes. Mm. And if you are a patron, there is a link for discount tickets. E. And until next time, dear listener, don't let us detain you. There we go. You've got my flash sides. <laughs> flash sides by name, flash sides by nature. Woof. I'm not even going to try and woof. I know my throat can't take it. (laughs) End of the man who has no voice. Ask me why. (laughs)